As a law enforcement officer, do you have an independent obligation to second-guess the constitutionality of a criminal statute that's never been held unconstitutional by a court? And can you be sued in federal court for executing an arrest warrant signed by a judge for a violation of that statute? In the Fifth Circuit, the answer to both questions is apparently yes. Welcome back to Broadcast Blue. Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. In this case, we're going to take a look at the decision in Villarreal versus the city of Laredo and other named defendants. And this case was decided by the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and the decision was issued on November 1st of 2021. This case is a Title 42, Section 1983 civil lawsuit that was brought by Priscilla Villarreal against the city of Laredo, Texas, Webb County, Texas, two Webb County prosecutors, and a number of Laredo police officers. Let me give you the background facts in this case. Villarreal is a self-described citizen journalist who regularly reports on crime, missing persons, community events, and other news to her 120,000 followers on her Facebook page, La Gorda Loca, which translates roughly to the crazy fat lady. She decided to become a citizen journalist as a result of a an experience that she had one afternoon in March of 2015, Villarreal awoke to police sirens speeding down her street in Laredo. Curious, she got in her truck and followed them, and she discovered that there was a hostage situation at a local residence. And after hearing gunshots, she discovered that officers from the Laredo Police Department had shot and killed the captor after the captor had already shot the two hostages. Villarreal turned on her phone and recorded footage from the scene, including officers removing bodies from the scene. And then she posted three short clips of these recordings to her Facebook page. And over the next few hours, she discovered that thousands of people had viewed the videos and many viewers engaged in discussion about the videos in the comment section of the Facebook post and also elsewhere. So this motivated her and the response that she received to the videos motivated her to capture more footage of local crime scenes and traffic incidents and post it to her Facebook page to share with other people. This was before Facebook launched its Facebook Live feature. Once Facebook Live was launched, Villarreal began live streaming crime scenes, traffic incidents, and other events of local concern. And at some point, she started adding commentary, which got really spicy, uh, a lot of the language in that regard. So I'll leave it at that for now. According to the ona19.journalist.org website, Villarreal combed the streets in the blue Dodge Ram known as the Blue Demon, looking for crime scenes to live stream police activity from her cell phone. The New York Times even had an article on her in their article entitled La Gorda Loca, The Swearing Muckraker Upending Border Journalism. Uh, the New York Times described Villarreal as a 10th grade dropout with a shaved head and an abundance of tattoos. They declared her arguably the most influential journalist in Laredo, a border city of 260,000. So she had 120,000 followers and she lives in a town of 260,000 people. 
Her Facebook reporting very quickly became highly critical of local law enforcement, which undoubtedly led to her popularity on Facebook. Her relationship with the city of Laredo and the Laredo Police Department could be described as antagonistic at worst and adversarial at best. So in addition to her Facebook fans, she was well known to the Laredo Police and public officials. In April of 2017, Villarreal posted a story about a man who committed suicide, and the story identified the man by name and revealed that he was an agent with the U.S. Border Patrol. And understand, you know, Laredo, if you've never been to Laredo, it's right on the border. It's one of those Texas border towns, Nuevo Laredo, uh, right across the, the bridge, the river there. It's a very interesting place. I've been there I, uh, when I was uh, teaching at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. I went out there to do some training, huge auditorium at the University of Texas at Laredo. It was very, very interesting place. Some good food, too, but um, it's a border town, so there be a lot of border patrol, a lot of border issues. There was a man who committed suicide. The story identified the man by name, revealed he was an agent with the border patrol. Now, Villarreal first uncovered um, the information but from talking to a janitor who worked near the scene of the suicide. And then she contacted, she then contacted the Laredo Police Department, a person there who confirmed the man's identity. And the following month, so a month later, Villarreal published the last name of a family involved in a fatal car accident in Laredo. And she first learned the family's identity from a relative of the family who saw a video that Villarreal had posted on Facebook. So again, Villarreal contacts the same officer in the Laredo Police Department to verify the information, and the officer verified the information. So after these two post of what the Laredo Police Department would consider non-public information, these names, these victims. Six months after she had made these two posts, as a result of these two instances of making this, two arrest warrants were issued for Villarreal for violating Texas Penal Code Section 39.06C, which states that, I'm quoting here, a person commits an offense if, with intent to obtain a benefit, he solicits or receives from a public servant information that one, the public service has access to by means of his office or employment, and two, has not been made public. So the Texas Penal Code, uh, this 39.06c, makes it a criminal offense for someone to solicit or receive this non-public information from a public servant that has this uh, insider information, if you will, as a result of their service, their public service. That's basically the statute in a nutshell. After learning about the warrant, Villarreal turned herself in. She learned about the warrant. When she found out she had a warrant, she uh, went down to the police station. During the booking process, she saw, according to her allegations, uh, Laredo police officers taking pictures of her in handcuffs with their cell phones. She stated that officers mocked at her and laughed at her. She was then detained in Webb County Jail. She filed a habeas corpus motion in Webb County District Court, where um, in an order issued from the bench, with no written order, Webb County Court Judge Knotson declared the Texas statute 3906C was unconstitutionally vague and Villarreal was ordered released. That was the first time that the statute had been declared unconstitutional by a court after her arrest. 
So after she was released, Villarreal filed a civil suit uh, in federal court on Title 42 of the United States Code, Section 1983, the civil action against the city of Laredo, Webb County, two Webb County district attorneys, the Laredo chief of police, a Laredo uh, Police Department criminal investigator, and four Laredo police officers. And she added two unknown city employees for good measure. In her complaint, she alleged a conspiracy and a pattern of harassment, intimidation, and retaliation by various local officials, culminating in her arrest in violation of her First Amendment right, her Fourth Amendment rights, and Fourteenth Amendment rights. And in her complaint filed in U.S. District Court for Southern Texas, she cited specific examples. Uh, she alleged one of the defendant officers willfully and falsely um, exclaimed to another group of fellow officers that Villarreal was a five-time convicted felon when he knew that Villarreal had never been convicted of a felony. She also alleged another officer threatened to take her phone as evidence while she was using her phone to record a live feed of a shooting scene. She was recording from a public area behind the yellow tape that the perimeter um, that the police had set up. The officer didn't threaten to take, uh, according to her allegation, didn't threaten to take the equipment of any other media members who were there at the scene. Uh, So she alleged she was singled out in that instance. She also alleged another officer harassed and intimidated her without justification while she was working a traffic incident for her employer, um, Orozco Crane and Towing, and continuing to arbitrarily harass her and force her away from her job site after he verified with her boss that she was on the job. She alleges that his harassment and intimidation induced her to have a panic attack that required her to make a trip to the hospital. She also alleged that the Laredo Police Department treated her with indifference when she called and spoke to police officers about being sexually assaulted at a business in Laredo, and it forced her to call the Webb County Sheriff because, uh, according to her allegations, the Laredo Police Department would do nothing about it. She also alleged that she was deliberately treated differently than other journalists and media members, including withholding information from her that was generally released to local newspapers and broadcasters. She also alleged that there was a closed-door meeting between her and several city and county officials, uh, during which one prosecutor openly declared to her that he did not appreciate uh, her criticizing his office and her criticism of his office for withdrawing an arrest warrant for animal abuse. And finally, she alleged that the city council members attacked and obstructed a proposal to construct a local park reading kiosk named after her late niece, which Villarreal published to her readers and helped introduce into the city council. She alleged that the hostility from various city council members was motivated solely out of malice towards her past criticism of the city council on her Facebook page and uh, and that their actions were demeaning towards um, her late, uh, her late niece. The individually named prosecutors sought dismissal of these charges on the grounds of absolute immunity and the officers uh, sought dismissal on the grounds of qualified immunity and the failure to state a claim. 
The county and the city, the municipalities, sought dismissal under the rule regarding municipal liability established in the 1978 Supreme Court decision Manel versus the Department of Social Services. So all of the named defendants in the case are trying to uh, get the, the charges uh, either thrown out or get immunity um, for what's happened. In a, in a very detailed 59-page decision, um, the district court granted the motion and dismissed all claims. Um, and the district court specifically held that, um, first of all, that the actions of the two prosecutors in investigating and preparing the arrest warrant affidavits were not entitled um, to absolute immunity. For you prosecutors out there, you might want to read the 1997 Supreme Court decision in Kalina versus Fletcher to learn about the limitations of absolute immunity. Um, but the, the court said that their actions, they were not entitled to absolute immunity. So if anything, it would be qualified immunity. And the court then turned to that. The court turned to the qualified immunity for um, all of the individuals that were named um, in this action. Qualified immunity is an affirmative defense. Uh, when we talk about qualified immunity, you're talking about a, an affirmative defense that's raised by the defendant in these 1983 actions. Um, and once it's raised, the burden is on the plaintiff. So all the defendant has to do is say qualified immunity, and then the burden shifts to the plaintiff to prove that qualified immunity does not apply. And this it's done through this test that the court has enumerated, um, Saucier versus Katz and Pierce's versus Callahan are probably your, your, your two best sources from the Supreme Court for that. But um, uh, there's a whole nother podcast on the quali whole qualified immunity thing. I don't want to get too much, uh, too deep in the weeds on the qualified immunity, but it's a huge part of this case. Um, and so we need to quickly, a little refresher here. The test for qualified immunity involves a two-step analysis. The first step is to determine um, whether or not the plaintiff has stated a violation of the constitutional right. And the second step is to determine whether um that the defendant's conduct was objectively reasonable in light of clearly established law. So was there was there a violation of the constitutional right? And if so, was this violation clearly established at the time that it occurred? And um, in you know, Pearson versus Callahan, the court said those uh, those don't have to be answered in any particular order. And in you know, recently, especially in light of the Pearson v. Callahan decision, um, the, a lot of times the court skipped to that second question first. So we're looking at qualified immunity. Those are the those are the tests, the the, the two things that we look at. And now we're going to look at all the district court. What did they do with all these claims? They addressed the Fourth Amendment claim first, um, and the court said that regarding her claim, the Fourth Amendment claim, that several of the named individuals caused her arrest without probable cause. The district court held that there was probable cause for the arrest, and they said, "Hey, this defeats the claim." And they dismissed count two of the complaint just because there was probable cause. Um, uh, now they then they went to count one. Now count one had different parts. Count one was the First Amendment uh, count of the complaint. The, the first thing they looked at was the First Amendment retaliation for investigation and arrest pursuant to 39.06C. And regarding her First Amendment retaliation claim, the district court noted that Villarreal based her First Amendment claim primarily on the decision to investigate and arrest her under 39.06C, that statute, um, allegedly without probable cause. 
the court noted that the Fifth Circuit precedent has held that in a situation in which law enforcement officers might have a subjective motive to retaliate, but there was also a ground to charge criminal conduct against a citizen they disliked, the objectives of law enforcement take primacy over the citizen's right to avoid retaliation. So basically, the the subjective intent was negated by the objective of law enforcement. And since um, since there was probable cause to arrest here, the court held that under this rule of law that the claim failed. Um, then the court, uh, prophetically, I'll add, and you'll you'll understand why a little later. Um, but the court prophetically noted. Um, that, and this is a quote, although not clearly articulated under count one, plaintiff may also be further alleging that it was objectively unreasonable to investigate and arrest her pursuant to 39.06c under the circumstances because a reasonable officer would have understood that the statute was facially unconstitutional in violation of her First Amendment rights. That's the end of the quote there. The court cited uh, the, the 2005 10th Circuit decision in Lawrence versus Reed, which held that where a statute authorizes conduct that is patently violative of fundamental constitutional principles, then reliance on the statute does not immunize the officer's conduct. So under the rule of law established in Lawrence versus Reed, if no reasonable law enforcement officer could have believed that their enforcement of the statute against the plaintiff was constitutional, then their actions clearly violated established law, and that would defeat qualified immunity. The district court noted that the question before the court is not whether 39.06c is unconstitutional, but whether any reasonable law enforcement officer could have believed that their enforcement of the statute against the plaintiff was constitutional. And the court held that based on a review of the legal precedent identified by the plaintiff, the court determined that 39.06c was not so patently or obviously unconstitutional that no reasonable law enforcement officer could have believed that their enforcement of the statute against the plaintiff was constitutional. So they basically raised this, um, although not clearly articulated under count one, they basically raised this whole notion um, of this rule of law established in the case Lawrence versus Reed, but then shot it down, saying that in this case that this particular statute wasn't um, patently um, obviously unconstitutional, and so therefore it didn't apply. They, the court then moved on to the specific incidents of First Amendment retaliation, and the court noted um, that, again, the plaintiff bears the burden to overcome qualified immunity defense, and the court stated in this case, Villarreal failed to identify legal precedent showing that any of the specific acts alleged was un, uh, objectively unreasonable or violated a clearly established right. And therefore, the court held that she failed to overcome qualified immunity as to each of these independent acts of First Amendment retaliation. The court then moved on to count three, the selective enforcement claim under the 14th Amendment. This is under the Equal Protection Clause. It's something um, that you don't talk about a whole lot in the academies. Um, I think you're going to be talking about more of it um, in the, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but it's an important part of the 14th Amendment, the, the notion of equal protection. Um, and generally, to establish an equal protection claim under the 14th Amendment, the plaintiff must prove that similarly situated individuals were treated differently. 
um, to allege a selective enforcement claim based on a class of one, which is basically what she's doing because it was just her. Uh, plaintiff must, in addition to that, the plaintiff must also allege that a defendant was motivated by improper considerations such as race, religion, or the desire to prevent the exercise of a constitutional right. And the court noted that in her complaint, she did not allege any facts that indicated that the defendants failed to enforce 39.06c against any other person where a similar situation existed. So assuming is true um, that the defendants had never before sought to enforce the statute, that fact by itself alone did not give rise to an inference of the discriminatory effect because it didn't establish that other similarly situated people could have been prosecuted but were not. Um, it, it would be equally plausible, the court held, to infer that the defendants had never before encountered circumstances giving rise. This was a one-off um, they never encountered this before, this potential prosecution under the statute in these same set of circumstances. And the court held that Villarreal's failure to allege facts that plausibly satisfy the similarly situated element alone precluded her selective enforcement claim and dismissed count three under the 14th Amendment. Count four of her complaint dealt with, uh, it was a civil conspiracy claim. Uh, Villarreal alleged that the individual defendants conspired with the intent to deprive her of constitutionally protected rights, including those arising under the 1st, 4th, and 14th Amendments. In order to allege a civil conspiracy under 1983, um, the, the court noted the, the requirements. First, um, the plaintiff has to establish the existence of a conspiracy involving state action. And then second, they have to show a deprivation of civil rights and furtherance of the conspiracy by a party to the conspiracy. So first, the court has to determine whether the plaintiff has alleged a constitutional violation that is objectively unreasonable in light of clearly established Fourth Amendment law. And only if that is the case should the court then consider whether the plaintiffs have alleged a conspiracy. In other words, a court has to first determine whether a plaintiff has alleged a deprivation of civil rights before considering, if necessary, whether they, uh, the plaintiff sufficiently pleaded the existence of the conspiracy. And since the court had already held that the defendant's conduct was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment, then the court held the conspiracy claim fails and the conspiracy count was also dismissed. At least three more charges now. We count five. Um, we have the supervisory liability claim against the police chief of the Laredo Police Department under the 1st, 4th, and 14th Amendments. Uh, the court stated the rule of law for this. Uh, a claim for supervisory liability must allege that the supervisor either failed to supervise or train subordinate officers. Um, a causal link existed between the failure to train or supervise and the violation of the plaintiff's rights and the failure to train or supervise amounted to deliberate indifference. It's this last bit, that deliberate indifference part, that makes it really difficult for plaintiffs to overcome um, the burden here. Um, and, uh, and I was doing some training not too long ago, uh, folks down in Escambia County, Florida. Shout out to the Escambia County Sheriff's Office. And I also did some training out in, um, in Fort Collins, in Larimer County, uh, uh, in Colorado, and a very beautiful place out there as well. Did some uh, supervisory training, the LEA 1, um, 
we did supervisor liability training and we did the same thing not too long before that we were out in Denton Texas so we go across the country and we do a, a lot of training in the legal aspects of law enforcement and one of the uh, popular four-hour courses uh, short courses is this supervisory liability and we talk about this a lot and this the whole notion of deliberate indifference what a, what amounts to deliberate indifference how much does it take um, what does it take in order for that to be established? Um, there's a great deal of discussion about super liabil- uh, supervisor liability in this decision, and I'm not going to go into it all here. The court held that the facts as alleged could not meet the requirements, these three requirements. And I told you, that especially the third one, that you have to show that there's a failure to either train or supervise and that uh, this this causal link this uh, between this failure uh, to train or supervise and which it directly leads to a violation of the rights and, but then and that's not enough on top of that you've got this to, it has to amount to deliberate indifference it just can't be a neglectful thing it has to be a deliberate indifference and if you want to know more about this um, there's a great discussion in this case that uh, I'm not going to go into in detail and um, um, in the in the district court um, decision, um, not in the appellate decision, um, but uh, it's a really it's a good little primer if you want to read up on it. I, I would highly recommend that to you. So again, the court held the facts as alleged could not meet the requirements, and they dismissed count five, which leaves us with two counts: count six and seven, which were the Manel claims against the city of Laredo and against Webb County, Texas. So they these two counts: count six. Um, um, and seven, they allege municipal liability. Their municipal liability claims pursuant to Manel versus Department of Social Services. Um, count six was against the city of Laredo. Count seven was against uh, Webb County. Uh, the court, uh, again, uh, talked about municipal liability What you under Manel, what you have to show to establish um, in a 1983 action, what it takes to establish liability of a municipality. Um, under Manel, the plaintiff has to allege three elements. They have to show an official policy or custom. They have to show um, that the policymaker, the person responsible for the the at the municipality, um, um, is aware of it. Either actually they either know of the policy or should know. Uh, construct what they call constructive knowledge. And the third requirement, the constitutional violation. Uh, violation. There has to be a constitutional violation whose moving force is that policy or custom, that direct, that's another causal type of link. With respect to the city of Laredo, the court held that none of the allegations uh, pointed to actions uh, taken by the Laredo city manager, which could be evidence of a policy by the city of Laredo. And accordingly, the court dismissed count six um, which was Villarreal's Manel claim against the city of Laredo. And with respect to Webb County, the court held that absent a well-pleaded policy of Webb County, the court um, found that the plaintiff had not sufficiently pled a Manel claim against Webb County, and count seven was dismissed. So all seven counts of the complaint at this point um, were dismissed um, by the district court, and the court entered a final judgment in favor of the defendants. Villarreal appealed the dismissal of her claims against the officials under the 1st, 4th, and 14th Amendments, and she also appealed the dismissal of her municipal liability claims against the city of Laredo. In her appeal, Villarreal alleged that the remaining defendants violated her First Amendment rights in two ways. First, by infringing on her constitutional right to ask questions of public officials, and second, 
by arresting her in retaliation of her exercise of First Amendment rights. She also claimed her Fourth Amendment rights were violated by a wrongful arrest, and she then claimed her 14th Amendment equal protection rights were violated through selective enforcement of this statute. She also appealed the decision on her conspiracy claim as well as her Manel claim against the city of Laredo. So let's take a look at what the Fifth Circuit decided in this case, and let's start with the First Amendment claim. Regarding the First Amendment infringement claim, the Fifth Circuit reversed the dismissal of the claim based on qualified immunity. The court held that in order to defeat qualified immunity at the motion um, to dismiss stage, uh, Villarreal must allege, first, that the officials violated her First Amendment rights, and second, that their actions were objectively unreasonable in light of clearly established law. Regarding the clearly established prong of the qualified immunity test, the court noted that ordinarily a plaintiff defeats qualified immunity by citing governing case law. That's what makes it clearly established. They find a violation where a court has ruled um, that there was a violation under factually similar circumstances, and that's what's usually required. We've seen a number of Supreme Court decisions come out recently uh, regarding this, and um, this whole notion of clearly established. But the court went on to note that that's not the only way to defeat qualified immunity. In other words, you don't always have to have a case um, that has very factually similar circumstances. Citing the 2018 Supreme Court decision in South versus Bauer, um, the court noted that a general constitutional rule already identified in the decisional law may apply with obvious clarity to the specific conduct in question, even though the very action in question has not previously been um, held unlawful. So, therefore, the, the doctrine of qualified immunity doesn't always require the plaintiff to cite binding case law involving identical facts. The court noted, and this is very important, an official who commits a patently obvious violation of the Constitution is not entitled to qualified immunity. The Fifth Circuit noted that the defendants respond um, to the, this by saying, look, we were simply enforcing a statute. Remember, the statute had never been declared unconstitutional by a court until after Villarreal uh, turned herself in and filed that habeas motion, right? But the court held some statutes are so obviously unconstitutional that we will require officials to second-guess the legislature and refuse to enforce an unconstitutional statute or face suit for damages if they don't. The court held that qualified immunity would not be granted in situations where the official attempts to hide behind a statute that is so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional that any person of reasonable prudence would be bound to see its flaws. So uh, a very important, a very significant statement by the court. The court then cited six cases in support of this notion, this proposition about uh, that the, the officers are going to be charged. Um, these officials, including police officers, will be required to second-guess the legislature. Um, 
and, and refuse to basically enforce the law. Law enforcement officers are going to have to, in some situations, second-guess statutes or face these personal liability for uh, in these lawsuits for damages if they don't. They, they cited six cases. Now, I'm not going to get into all of them. Um, I'll talk about a little bit of, of more at the, at the end when I tell you, give you my two cents worth on this opinion. But the Fifth Circuit cited these six cases, um, and I want to share them with you. And, and one of the cases for this proposition, Carey versus the Nevada Gaming Board, uh, Gaming Control Board, it was a Ninth Circuit decision from 2002. Um, there was the Guillemard v. Gennario versus Contreras Gomez, First Circuit decision 2007, which denied qualified immunity um, where the statute allowed officials to suspend professional license without a hearing in violation of the Due Process Clause. Uh, Leonard versus Robinson, a Sixth Circuit 2007 decision where uh, qualified immunity was denied where a statute criminalized cursing by the name of God and indecent language in front of women and children. Um, we also have Lawrence versus Reed um, was the case, a primary case that the court, remember in the district court, they kind of brought that up a little prophetically, um, denying qualified immunity where derelict vehicle ordinance provided no hearing whatsoever, um, um, where they could go in and remove the vehicles with no hearing because um, it was a sufficiently obvious uh, violation of due process. Vives versus the city of New York, a Second Circuit 2005 decision, where the Second Circuit denied qualified immunity, where an official relied on the law that was, quote, so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional that any person of reasonable prudence would be bound to see its flaws. Um, there was a similar case out of the D.C. Circuit in 2002, Letterman versus United States. And then uh, lastly, Aubin versus Columbia Case Company. It, um, uh, that's a district court decision out of Louisiana in 2017. There was a public intimidation statute, um, and the court held that no reasonable officer could rely on this statute to arrest a person who threatened to have them fired from the police department. So so they've cited cases in support of this proposition uh, regarding uh, some statutes are so of obviously unconstitutional. I, I do want to point out, though, that not a none of them dealt with uh, a person turning themselves in at a police station because a warrant had been issued for their arrest by a judge. Um, so that's a, a kind of interesting. But anyway, I'll get more. We'll come back to that later. So the Fifth Circuit concluded that the Texas Penal Code 39.06C is one of those statutes and that it should be patently obvious to any reasonable police officer that the conduct alleged in the complaint constitutes a blatant violation of Villarreal's constitutional rights, and that should be enough to defeat qualified immunity. The court said, Accordingly, we join our sister circuits in holding that the doctrine of qualified immunity does not permit government officials to invoke patently unconstitutional statutes like 39.06c to avoid liability for their actions. Turning next to Villarreal's First Amendment retaliation theory, the court set forth the rule that to establish such a claim, Villarreal must show, one, she was engaged in constitutionally protected activity, Two, the defendant's actions caused her to suffer an injury that would chill a person of ordinary firmness from continuing to engage in that activity. And three, that the defendant's adverse actions were substantially motivated against her exercise of constitutionally protected conduct. 
So the court noted that Fifth Circuit precedent is held that a retaliation, a First Amendment retaliation claim, requires some showing that the plaintiff's exercise of free speech has been curtailed. Uh, that's not the case in all circuits, but Fifth Circuit precedent requires that. It's not enough to show that 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 they did something that was in, that intended to curtail her um, her activity. It, they have to show that it actually does. Uh, that there has to be some showing that the exercise of free speech has actually been impaired or curtailed. And the court noted that Villarreal failed to allege that her own exercise of free speech had been curtailed, and, and therefore the Fifth Circuit held that Villarreal failed to sufficiently plead a First Amendment retaliation claim. The court then turned to Villarreal's Fourth Amendment wrongful arrest claim. And to prevail on the claim, the court held that Villarreal must show that she was seized and that the seizure was unreasonable because it lacked probable cause. The defendants in the case argued they were entitled to qualified immunity because their arrest, their arrest warrant sufficiently alleged a violation of 39.06c, and they obtained it from a magistrate judge. So the magistrate made the determination of probable cause. Um, but the court noted the fact that a neutral magistrate has issued a warrant authorizing the allegedly unconstitutional search or seizure does not end the inquiry into objective reasonableness. Even when officers obtain an arrest warrant from a magistrate, we ask whether a reasonably well-trained officer in the defendant's position would have known that his affidavit failed to establish probable cause and that he should not have applied for a warrant. Um, as explained above, the court noted um, and, and stated that a reasonably well-trained officer would have understood that arresting a journalist for merely asking a question clearly violates the First Amendment. A government official may not base a probable cause determination on an unjustifiable standard such as um, speech protected by the First Amendment. And just as the First Amendment violation alleged in the complaint was obvious for the purposes of qualified immunity, so too the Fourth Amendment violation alleged here. The court held that the district court erred in dismissing Villarreal's Fourth Amendment claim, and they reversed. The Fifth Circuit next addressed Villarreal's selective enforcement claim under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, to bring a selective enforcement claim, the plaintiff has to prove that the government's official acts were motivated by improper considerations such as race, religion, or the desire to prevent the exercise of a constitutional right. The court said, We have no difficulty observing that journalists commonly ask for non-public information from public officials um, and that Villarreal was therefore entitled to make that same reasonable inference. And yet, uh, the defendants in the case chose to arrest Villarreal and only Villarreal for violating 39.06c. And so the Fifth Circuit concluded that Villarreal had sufficiently pled the existence of similarly situated journalists who were not arrested for violating 39.06c. The district court accordingly uh, erred. Uh, in dismissing Villarreal's selective enforcement claim, the Fifth Circuit reversed it. Regarding the claim for the conspiracy to violate constitutional rights, Villarreal had brought a claim for the conspiracy to violate her constitutional rights under this 19, uh, Section 1983 action. Since the Fifth Circuit had already concluded that the district court erred in dismissing the first, fourth, and fourteenth amendment claims, they remanded. 
uh, Villarreal's conspiracy claim as well. And finally, the court addressed Villarreal's municipality uh, liability claim against the city of Laredo, inciting the 1978 Supreme Court decision in Manel versus Department of Social Services. The court noted that municipal liability under Section 1983 requires proof of three elements. First, that a policymaker, um, that there's a policymaker that makes the decision or determination of policy or custom. Second, that there actually is an official policy or custom. And lastly, that, um, that there's a violation of constitutional rights whose moving force is that policy or custom. The district court held that Villarreal failed to identify an official policy or custom made by uh, a final policymaker. Um, um, the Fifth Circuit agreed with that, and they they affirmed that. Although Villarreal repeatedly refers to an official city police policy or custom of retaliating against her for reporting, she fails to sufficiently allege either. Villarreal, the court stated, does not point to any ordinance, statute, statement, or regulation directing city employees to retaliate against her, nor does Villarreal sufficiently allege a custom. Um, she does not allege that city employees retaliated against, investigated, or arrested anyone else because of their speech, and therefore they affirm the district court's judgment dismissing Villarreal's municipal liability claim against the city of Laredo. So what's our takeaway uh, from this case? Well, at least in the Fifth Circuit, as of now, officers are required to second-guess the state legislature and make an independent determination of the constitutional validity of a criminal statute before arresting someone pursuant to an arrest warrant issued by a judge. Now, this decision was issued just days before this recording was produced. And it may be that a rehearing in bank or an appeal to the United States Supreme Court will eventually overrule this decision. The chief judge uh, for the Fifth Circuit, who sat in the three-judge panel for the decision, dissented and apparently is writing a separate opinion that, um, as of now, hasn't been filed yet. I look forward to reading that. But for now, uh, this is the law in the Fifth Circuit. Okay, this is the opinion part of the search and seizure broadcast where I get to tell you what I think about the case. Now, I need to give you a fair warning. There's some pretty strong language in one of the cases that the Fifth Circuit cited and that I'm going to be quoting. So this part of the presentation might not be appropriate for children. So in this case, the Fifth Circuit held that any official who commits a patently obvious violation of the Constitution is not entitled to qualified immunity. And furthermore, that some statutes are so obviously unconstitutional that we will require officials to second-guess the legislature and refuse to enforce an unconstitutional statute or face a suit for damages if they don't. So that, this is a pretty strong language and it's a very important rule of law. In support of this assertion, in which I'll point out, you know, they, they stated that they joined their sister circuits in reaching the same conclusion. They cited seven specific cases from the other circuits to support this conclusion, the ones they said they were joining in reaching the same conclusion. And I just want to point out, I want to go through these cases. I want to go into these cases a lot more than the Fifth Circuit did. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, I'll tell you up front, not a single 
single one of them stands for the proposition that an arrest based on a warrant issued by a neutral judge could lead to personal liability on the part of the officers if the statute upon which the arrest was made was later deemed to be unconstitutional by a a court. Now, that's specifically what happened in this case. We had a warrant issued by a neutral judge where the judge determined whether or not there was probable cause under the statute, but not the officers. The officers weren't the ones. They can't issue warrants. Judges issue warrants. So let me go into these cases. It's a pretty powerful statement that the Fifth Circuit's making here, a pretty powerful rule of law. Let's take a little bit deeper look at these cases, these seven cases that they cited to support their conclusion. Okay, The the first one is Carey versus Nevada Gaming Control Board. This was out of the Ninth Circuit in two 2002. And this came about, a little bit mentioned before, uh, came about as a result of a warrantless arrest of a person for failure to identify themselves as required under Nevada statute. Now, importantly, in this case, there were two, not one, but two previous Ninth Circuit decisions that had held that the statute was unconstitutional as applied to Terry stops. And so when an officer applied the statute to a Terry stop, having been told by two previous Ninth Circuit decisions that it was unconstitutional, the statute was unconstitutional as applied to Terry stops, that the court in this case said that the officer was denied qualified immunity for acting under a statute that had twice been declared unconstitutional as the officer applied it. That's where the that's where the officers need to know what the law. And that's part of your professionalism in constitutional policing, right? Knowing what the law is, knowing what the courts have said you can and cannot do. I've said repeatedly when I when I teach search and seizure law that the Fourth Amendment is where you live if you're a law enforcement officer. You've got to know what the courts have said and uh, what the statutes are, what the rule of law is. And the court noted in the Kerry decision that although state officials who rely on statutes are generally presumed to act reasonably, an official may nevertheless be liable for enforcing a statute that is patently violative of fundamental constitutional principles, which is similar. That sounds very similar to what the Fifth Circuit said in the in, in this case, in the Villarreal case. But what's important to understand, and you know, they're citing the Kerry, in the Kerry case, it was the previous judicial decisions that made the act a patently obvious violation. Again, in the Villarreal case, the, the statute had was never declared to be unconstitutional until after the arrest took place. The second case that I want to talk about that the court cited was the Guillemard Genereo versus Contreras Gomez decision from 2007 out of the First Circuit. That case didn't deal with police at all. The case dealt with a license revocation by a licensing board that had access to ostensibly a attorney and legal counsel. It didn't involve police or it didn't involve arrest. And so and fundamentally, it's just fundamentally different on its face and it doesn't apply at all to making an arrest with a warrant. In the Leonard v. Robinson case, the next case the court cited, um, that was a case out of the Sixth Circuit back in 2007. In that case, they denied qualified immunity where a person was arrested under a state statute that criminalized cursing 
in the name of God and another statute that criminalized indecent language in front of women and children. A citizen sued a police officer in, in a 1983 action alleging that the officer retaliated against him on the basis of speech by arresting him at a township board meeting after he uttered the phrase, God damn. The court held that a Michigan statute regulating speech in the presence of women and children could not provide probable cause for the arrest at a public board meeting, and the court held that the statutes relied upon in making the arrest were unconstitutional as applied. What's important here in this case, um, which, which on its face seems kind of similar, and it is, but what's really important here is that this was a warrantless arrest made with a probable cause determination made by the police officer and not a judge. You know, we've been we train very early on from from day one, right? The, that when you make a warrantless search or a seizure, it's presumptively unreasonable. But when you make one based on a warrant, it's presumptively reasonable. This in the Leonard versus Robinson case, the probable cause determination wasn't made. By a judge, like it was in the Villarreal decision, it was made by the police officer himself. Lawrence versus Reed, a case that was cited by the district court and the circuit court of appeals here, they went into it in great depth. This is the one that primarily they kind of relied upon. And let me tell you what happened in the Lawrence, just quickly, quick summary Lawrence versus Reed. The chief of police consulted with the city attorney regarding these derelict vehicles. And there was a local ordinance that provided for the seizure of derelict vehicles without any hearing whatsoever. After consulting with the city attorney, the chief went out and seized the vehicles. It was a warrantless seizure, right? But because there was no hearing available whatsoever, the court said it was sufficiently obvious that this was a violation of due process. We're talking about a police chief in consultation with a city attorney seizing vehicles under a derelict vehicle ordinance without due process. Again, it's a warrantless seizure and it it doesn't fit the facts of what we have in this case. And there's a general notion here that they should know that a hearing should be available for the due process, but um, we're talking about due process here and not the first or the fourth amendment. The fifth case the court cites is Vibes versus the City of New York. This is out of the Second Circuit in 2005. And uh, basically, uh, in Vibes, a person um, was arrested under a New York statute that was later held to be unconstitutional. The court said that there's no qualified immunity where an official relies on a law so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional that any person of reasonable prudence would be bound to see its flaws. But In this case, the officer was actually given qualified immunity because the court said it wasn't inevitable that the statute would be declared constitutional. When they talk about just so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional, it just has to rise to that level where there's absolutely no doubt this statute is going to be held to be unconstitutional. And in this particular case, the officer was actually given qualified immunity because it was not inevitable the statute would be declared unconstitutional. And again, talking about a warrantless arrest not one with a warrant. In the Letterman versus United States decision, another case cited by the Fifth Circuit, this was from the D.C. Circuit in 2002, there were protesters at the Capitol, and they were in an area that was declared by statute, a criminal statute, to be a no-demonstration zone. They were arrested 
for protesting in this no demonstration zone at the Capitol. Now it was later declared that this zone that it would it was unconstitutional that to, to declare a, this public spot in front of the Capitol. We're talking about the Capitol. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about political speech in front of the Capitol. You can't get any more protected than that when it comes to First Amendment speech, can you? Protesters are arrested. The, they were sued. The, the officers were sued. No, they were federal officers, so it wasn't a 1983 action. It was a Bivens action, which is the federal equivalent uh, or analogy to the 1983. These federal officers were given qualified immunity. They were actually given qualified immunity. So there's a second case where they've cited to where the officers were actually given the qualified immunity because they said the unconstitutionality of the ordinance declaring the no demonstration zone was not clearly established when the officers made the arrest. So it wasn't grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional to have a statute that prohibited protesting right outside of Congress. And the last case uh, that I, that the court referred to that I'm going to refer to, it's probably the one I guess best supports the argument. And maybe that's why they cited it. And it's a district court case. It's not even a it's not even a circuit court decision. It's from the Middle District of Louisiana in 2017, the Aubin versus Columbia Cast Company. This is a, an interesting case, and the, and here's where the language gets a little. Um, it gets a little bad. And so just to kind of warn you, it's an interesting set of facts. I'm not gratuitously going to spew profanity out here, but, uh, but it's important for you to put for everything to be in the context. They're going to cite this case as in support of what happened in Villarreal. So in, on April 30th of 2015, according to the allegations now of the plaintiff, I mean, you have to take these things in light of the facts most favorable to plaintiff, the Certainly, the facts are disputed, but uh, according to the plaintiff in this 1983 uh, lawsuit, there was a deputy who arrived in their neighborhood in uh, Denham Springs, Louisiana, in a response to a complaint that was made about their neighbor. Plaintiffs in the case, the Aubins, claim that when they approached the deputy, the deputy told Mr. Aubin to stand back and shut his mouth. And then they allege that the deputy called Ms. Aubin a pussy. And when Mr. Aubin asked the deputy not to curse in front of his wife, the deputy said, one more time and your pussy ass is going to jail. The plaintiffs also asserted that Mr. Aubin then told Deputy Durkin that he was going to call the deputy supervisor and complain about him and that he said, I'm going to get you fired. I'm going to have your job. At that point, the plaintiffs alleged that the deputy hit Mr. Aubin in the head and head with his handcuffs, twisted his arms behind his back, kicked him in the legs and buttocks, and threw him on his patrol car. And the plaintiffs also alleged that when Miss Aubin asked about what was happening, the deputy told her, shut up, bitch, before I take you with the dumbass. And then they alleged that Mr. Aubin was charged with resisting an officer, interfering with a law enforcement investigation, and public intimidation. Now, the court, the district court in this case, held that the actions of the plaintiffs did not establish probable cause to arrest under the statute as applied. That's a significant difference. Public intimidation didn't include telling a police officer that they were going to talk to their boss and report them and and cause them to lose their job. So the court said that there wasn't probable cause to arrest under the statute as, as applied. And that's a significant difference here, that the arresting officer made an in 
incorrect probable cause determination in the application of the statute in a way that was patently obvious. The statute itself is not unconstitutional. It was unconstitutional in the way that the arresting officer tried to apply it. It was patently obvious that you couldn't arrest someone for public intimidation when they tell you that they're going to complain about your actions and try to cost you your job. There's a significant difference between all of the cases cited by the Fifth Circuit and the case we're discussing today, and that is quite simply a warrant. In all of the cases cited by the Fifth Circuit that involve police making seizures, there was no warrant and the police were making the probable cause determination. In this decision, unlike any of the cited cases, the officers had a warrant to arrest Villarreal with a probable cause determination made by a judge. So in the Villarreal decision, the Fifth Circuit's requiring that officers not only second-guess legislative bodies with the authority to enact law, but also second-guess judges in the absence of cases to the contrary. Many of these cases cite the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Michigan v. Filippo, and here's the exact quote that is used in the Villarreal decision as well as several of the cited cases. Quote, There is no qualified immunity if statute is so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional that any person of reasonable prudence would be bound to see its flaws. But I think it's wise to put this quote into context by providing the language of the Supreme Court on either side of this sentence. Here, take a look. Here's the full quote. Listen to this. Police are charged to enforce laws until and unless they are declared unconstitutional. The enactment of a law forecloses speculation by enforcement officers concerning its constitutionality, with the possible exception of a law so grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional that any person of reasonable prudence would be bound to see its flaws. Society would be ill-served if its police officers took it upon themselves to determine which laws are and which are not constitutionally entitled to enforcement, end quote. Now, that's the full quote. That is the, you take the one part that's kind of cherry-picked and you look at it in the absence of what's on either side of it. It doesn't quite seem the same, does it? Let me say that last part again. Let me give you the last sentence again. Society would be ill-served if its police officers took it upon themselves to determine which laws are and which are not constitutionally entitled to enforcement. In many cases, prior judicial determinations are what make the statute flagrantly unconstitutional. The best proof of the argument that the Texas statute in question didn't rise to this level of being grossly and flagrantly unconstitutional is the fact that a district court judge well-trained in constitutional law said it wasn't. In a, said it wasn't flagrantly unconstitutional in a well-written 59-page decision. In point of fact, uh, this wasn't even a unanimous decision by the Fifth Circuit. I mean, it was a 2-1 decision in front of the panel. And, and don't forget, you had a judge who made the probable cause determination that made no determination regarding the constitutionality of the statute. So, so of the four judges who answered this question, Two of them felt that it was not patently obvious to the point that qualified immunity should be denied. Denying the officers qualified immunity for executing an arrest warrant signed by a judge for an offense later declared by the court to be unconstitutional is just patently unfair to the police officers. And and that's my two cents. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of Search and Seizure. Search and Seizure is brought to you by Leah One. 
Leah One is the only commercial legal training provider with all of the following credentials. Leah One instructors are either FLETC certified senior legal instructors or state academy legal instructors with years of experience training tens of thousands of law enforcement officers across the country. All Leah One instructors are former prosecutors with extensive criminal trial experience. All Leah One courses are professionally designed by certified curriculum development specialists and all LEA-1 lesson plans are continuously updated and peer-reviewed annually for accuracy and sufficiency. LEA-1 brings you professional legal training, so come to LEA-1 for the LEA-1 difference. LEA-1 is www.lea.one. LEA-1 is a division of V-Stars U.S. Incorporated, a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.